Well, I want you to take your Bibles, please, and go with me to the book of Psalms today. In the Old Testament, most of you can find the book of Psalms quickly. In the Old Testament, Psalm 37. Would you turn there, please? Psalm 37. While you're opening your Bible to that passage, let me uh, give you a little bit of information about the psalm. This particular psalm, as so many of the psalms are, is attributed to David, uh, king of Israel, son of Jesse, um, David the psalmist. And this particular psalm uh, was written in David's later life. Now, we usually think about David writing his poetry, writing these songs early in his life. Um, David's most famous psalm is Psalm 23, right? And, and we believe that Psalm 23 was crafted by David when he was a young boy, even a teenager, uh, when he would be taking his father's sheep uh, from Bethlehem uh, up in the mountains of Judea near Jerusalem down through the deep valley, the wadis, the valleys that go down from the mountains into the Jordan Valley, to the well-watered plains of Jericho. And as he was taking his father's sheep down through those deep and, and uh, dark and dangerous valleys, uh, he was the shepherd of those sheep. Then he crafted this Psalm 23, which we all love, the Lord is my shepherd. In the same way I'm the shepherd of these sheep, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The sheep want for nothing. I want for nothing. God provides my needs. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and he was literally walking through these valleys, I will not fear, for you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. So, so these are, uh, are the types of Psalms that we typically uh, think of David writing, a young man, even a boy, uh, expressing his worship and his praise to God. Not so in Psalm 37. Verse 25, look at it, Psalm 37, 25 tells us that David is old when he writes this particular psalm. Uh, he says in chapter 37 and verse 25, I have been young and now I am old. And so he's written this psalm later in his life. There is a sense of maturity about this psalm. When you read through it, there are 40 verses in it, but when you read through it, there is a sense of calmness and peace and confidence in the Lord, which comes from a long walk with the Lord, which is born out of a maturity that we gain as we walk with the Lord over many years. And he writes this psalm specifically to God's people to encourage them to trust in God's goodness even when they're suffering. Now listen carefully. To trust in God's goodness and wisdom even when life is difficult, when they're suffering. And more specifically, he writes Psalm 37 to say, I want you to trust in the Lord even when you're suffering as you see unrighteous people prospering, when life seems to be unfair. Well, in our context, the difficulties, the suffering, the hardships are universal, but the principles of how we trust in the Lord during difficult days still are obvious in Psalm 37. Now, as I mentioned, there are 40 verses. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Let me just read two portions of it to you. Uh, look with me in Psalm 37 and verse number three, if you would. Follow along as I read. David writes, trust in the Lord and do good. And so shalt thou dwell in the land, and surely or verily you shall be fed. 
Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Verse 7, rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings about wicked devices or wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evil doers shall be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Skip over to verse number 23, please. Verse 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. He is ever merciful, and he lends, and his seed is blessed." Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They, his saints, are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that the original purpose of Psalm 37 was David's intent to say to all of God's people, sometimes life is difficult and sometimes life even seems unfair. Because sometimes it appears that the people of God suffer while the people of the world, uh, the wicked as they're called in Psalm 37, seem to be prospering. And he writes this psalm to them to draw the difference between those two groups of people and to express the goodness of God when it seems that in relation to these two groups of people, life is imbalanced. In fact, there are at least a dozen times in this one psalm when David draws a sharp contrast between God's people, the righteous they're called, and the wicked people or the evil doers. Now there's, there's, there's no question about the distinction that is made in this psalm. Look at verses 1 and 2. We didn't read them, but go back to the first part of the psalm, verses 1 and 2. He says, Fret not thyself because of evil doers, neither be envious against the workers of iniquity. Do you see that? He identifies a group of people as workers of iniquity or as evil doers. Verse number seven, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him, fret not thyself because of he who pours in, or he who prospers rather, in his way, because of the man who brings about wicked devices or who works uh, in wicked schemes. So he's drawing this picture that there are some people identified very, very clearly as evil doers. Now then he also uh, notes those that are called the righteous. Verse number nine, those that wait upon the Lord. Uh, verse number seven, those that rest in the Lord. Verse five, those that commit their way to the Lord. So two groups of people. 
And throughout the psalm, he contrasts those two groups. Uh, Verse number 11, he contrasts the meek with the wicked in verse number 12. In verse number 14, he contrasts the wicked with those of an upright lifestyle. In verse 16, he contrasts the righteous man with the wicked man. In verse number 17, he talks about the arms of the wicked, how they will be broken, versus the Lord upholding the righteous. Look at verse 20. He talks about the enemies of the Lord or the wicked in verse 21 compared to the righteous in verse number 21. In verse 28, he talks about the saints compared to those whom he calls the wicked. Now, the distinction between what David calls the wicked and the righteous is unambiguous from the perspective of God. And the truth is, it's it's not always so clear from human eyes. Because the truth is, the wicked person doesn't always act wickedly, right? The, The unsaved person doesn't always do bad things. In fact, sometimes the unsaved can do very good things. And the flip side of that is sadly true as well. The righteous person doesn't always act righteously. The person that would be called the saint in Psalm 37 doesn't always live in a saintly manner. So from our perspective, to to make the distinction between the wicked and the righteous is less possible. In fact, sometimes it might even be perceived as impossible. But make no mistake about it, from the perspective of God, the distinction is clear. The line of demarcation is obvious, and every person falls into one of those two categories, either the righteous, the saints, or the wicked, or the evil doers. Now, the difference is made in Jesus. Let's be clear. Jesus makes wicked people righteous. Jesus takes the unsaved person and draws him to a place of faith and confidence in Jesus. And when the person who is unrighteous or evil or wicked, the unsaved person, when that person recognizes their condition and repents of that sin and trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then they are transferred from the first column, wicked, into the other column, righteous or a saint. You see, what I want you to know is, while the, while the distinction is clear in Psalm 37, the way that we move into the righteous column is not by what we do, it is by what Jesus has done for us. While we recognize that each one of us is in one of those two distinctive categories, Psalm 37 speaks very plainly to both the righteous and the wicked. Now, let's begin by noticing what Psalm 37 says, what David writes to those of us who know Christ, and he instructs us in this passage what to do in days of suffering. These are certainly difficult days in our lives. What are we to do now? We recognize that the situation has thrust itself upon us. None of us would have chosen this, but here we are in it. So what do we do with the circumstance that we have been given? He tells us in Psalm 37 what we should do. Number one, write this down. First of three things, by the way, that he says we should do. He says that we should trust in the Lord. 
We should trust in the Lord. And there are three words, three imperatives, if you will, in Psalm 37, which uh, command us to trust in the Lord. The first one's in verse number three. It's very plain. It says, trust in the Lord. Verse number five, commit thy way unto the Lord. And in verse number seven, rest in the Lord. What do we do during difficult days? David says we should trust, we should commit, and we should rest. Now, let's talk about the three words. The first word in verse number three, when he says to us in difficult days, trust in the Lord, the word means that knowing the character of God, knowing that God is wise and that he's good and that he makes no mistakes so that he is sovereign over all of the circumstances of our lives, knowing who he is, we simply lay ourselves at his feet. We, we, we lay down confidently that his care is over us. You know, this is, um, this is presented so beautifully in the book of Ruth, where Ruth needing the care in a very difficult circumstance, and I won't take time to, to walk through all of her difficulties, many of you know it, but in a very difficult and broken life circumstance, she needed the care of a redeemer, and Boaz was that redeemer. And the book of Ruth tells us how that in the middle of the night, one night she goes and she lays herself down at his feet. And in doing so, she is expressing, she's demonstrating her confidence in his character, in who he is, in his ability to care for her. She trusts him and she lays down at his feet. And if you've read the book of Ruth, you know that he wakes up and he discovers there's a woman laying uh, there at the, at, the, at the feet of where he's sleeping. And he says, who is that? And and so she says, well, I'm Ruth. I'm asking you to care for me. And she expresses that by saying, put your tallit, your prayer shawl over me to demonstrate that you'll care for me. The point is she knew the character of Boaz, her redeemer. And so she laid down and trusted him. That's what verse three says. Know that God is good. Put yourself at his feet. That's trusting in him. Secondly, in verse number five, he says, commit thy way unto the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful word, commit. It means to roll all of your confidence, to roll all of your circumstance before him. It's the idea of taking your your life as it is, taking your circumstance uh, as it is, and simply rolling it to the Lord, letting it go from your hands and rolling it over to him. It's the idea that, that here's my circumstance, I'm sliding it across the table to him. My way, when he says commit your way, it is the way of your life or the course that you're now on, the circumstance that we're all facing. He says, take that circumstance as it is, commit it to the Lord, slide it across the table to him, roll it to him, trust in the Lord, Commit your circumstance to the Lord. And number three, rest. You see this in verse number seven, rest in the Lord. And the word means exactly what it says. It is to relax. Do you feel like you need to relax right now? Do you feel like the tension and the stress and the concern and the worry has just been ratcheted higher and higher and higher and tighter and tighter and tighter and that you just need to breathe. Just relax. And as verse seven instructs, you rest in the Lord. The word really is a word of just quiet, of just to be silent 
before him and to know that in his presence, under his care, committing your way to him and trusting his character, that you don't have to fret, you don't have to panic, you, you don't have to, to, uh, to be uh, all worried and, and, and scurrying about in despair. You can rest in the arms of your Lord. Three words, trust, commit, and rest. What do we do when the coronavirus is raging? What do we do now that our nation has become the number one nation in the world for instances of coronavirus? Where in New York City, literally 50,000 people are infected and, and thousands are dying. What do we do when, when businesses are closing and people are losing their jobs? We commit our way, we know his character and trust, and we rest quietly in him. Commit your way to the Lord and rest in him. Now, the second thing that David says that we should do in Psalm 37, and this is verse number four, is that he says we should seek our comfort from or in the Lord. Seek your comfort in the Lord. Now, we all need comfort. We'll make no arguments about that. But where do we find the comfort? Look at verse four. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thy heart. Many of us know this verse but did you know it was spoken to people who were suffering? And he says in verse number four that we should find our delight in the Lord. David looks around at uh, people who are suffering, people who are enduring hardship, and he realizes that we often crave comfort in things that will not comfort us at all. Are you doing that? Are you looking for comfort in this situation, in things that you know at the end of the day are not going to comfort you? Maybe you're looking for comfort in food. Uh, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about, hey, we're all home now. We're all gaining weight. Somebody said to me the other day, it's not just the, the COVID-19 virus. I'm gaining the COVID-19. Uh, like, you know, you're freshman 20. Well, this is, we're gaining the COVID-19. Are you looking for comfort in food? A lot of people do that. Um, Maybe you're looking for comfort in, in uh, just disconnection. You know, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to binge watch Netflix eight hours a day and, and just trying to drown my sorrows in escapism. Uh, maybe there's too much alcohol in your, in your home and now in your body. And so in these days of, of, of loneliness and, and despair and concern, you're just you're, you're drinking too much alcohol. I don't know, where are you looking for comfort? Here's the, here's the challenge. Here's the encouragement from David. Find your comfort in the Lord. Don't look for it anywhere else. Seek your comfort in him. And when you find your delight in the Lord, then you'll never be disappointed. I promise you, if you, if you look for comfort in food, you'll be disappointed. If you look for it in, in escapism or in alcohol or anything else, you're going to be disappointed. It will not, it will not satisfy your desire. But if you'll look for your comfort in the Lord, you will not be disappointed because he will fully satisfy or fully comfort you. So when we talk about delighting ourselves in the Lord, well, how do we do that? Well, we seek him through his word. You, you perhaps have more time on your hands now than you've had uh, in many months. Let me encourage you, use some of that time in God's word. Seek the Lord in his word. 
Seek the Lord in worship. Find your delight in worship. Turn the television off. Turn the news off and turn on some worship music and allow yourself to sit quietly and receive the, the, the encouragement, the inspiration of that worship music. Seek the Lord in prayer. Find a place where you can seek him in prayer. Seek the Lord's fulfillment in witness. Take this opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus and his peace that he is giving you during this season. But if you will let the Lord be your delight, then you will never be disappointed. This is verse number four. Seek your comfort in the Lord and you will not be disappointed. He will give you the desires of your heart. So what should we do when we're suffering? Number one, we should trust in the Lord. Number two, we should seek our comfort in the Lord. Here's the third thing that David says. We should replace anger with action. Replace our frustration with action. Can I ask you a question? Are you a little bit angry? Do do you feel some frustration? Are you seething a little bit inside? Maybe you have um, uh, great frustration about the limits that have been placed upon us as a people. Don't go here. Don't go there. Close that business. Stay in your home. Maybe there's some frustration about that. Uh, Maybe you have agreements or disagreements with policy decisions that local or national leaders are making. Are you allowing that to seethe within you and, and, and cause anger to rise within you? Here's what David would say. When when all of this suffering causes anger and frustration, do something with the anger. Let it go and replace it with action. Notice what he says in verse number eight. Cease from anger. There's a command. If you want to have the confidence and the peace of the Lord, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Let that anger go. And what do we do instead? Look at verse number 27. He says in verse 27, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. So when times are tough like this and and frustration can tend to rise and pressure can tend to rise and when we get stressed, we get more angry and it seems as if we're being wound tighter and tighter, getting more and more frustrated, more and more angry. He says, take that anger and replace it with action. Verse 27, do good. How can you take that pent up energy, that pent up anger and release it in a productive, in a godly way? Go serve a neighbor. Uh, Take that anger and rather than sitting and seething about it, stewing over it, uh, go see how you might serve someone uh, in your world. Check on a friend. Uh, Go to the store for someone who doesn't need to go out. Buy some food and supplies. Bring them here to the church and and leave them and and participate. Do something productive, something good. Go share the gospel with somebody. You know, people are more open to talking about spiritual things today maybe than they have have been in our lifetimes. Go and tell somebody how that Jesus has given you peace and he can give them peace as well. But the point is, don't seethe. Don't be angry. Don't be frustrated, but transfer that anger into action. And so David is clear. When life seems unfair and life is difficult, when we're all suffering, trust in the Lord, commit your way to him, rest in him, find your your comfort in him, 
and then take all of the frustrations that go along with hard times and release that energy into doing something productive and good for the Lord and his kingdom. Now, this is the first step in, in having peace and comfort and confidence as we go through difficult times. These are the things that we're called to do. Now, the promise of Psalm 37 then goes on to say that God makes some promises to the righteous. Remember, we talked about two distinctive groups in this, in this psalm, the righteous and the unrighteous. God makes some very encouraging promises to us who know Jesus. Notice what he says. He promises us his constant care. Now, I want to show you this in verse number 3, verse number 9, verse 25. Listen to what he says. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and surely you shall be fed. Look at verse number 9. It says something very similar. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 3, trust the Lord, do good, you'll dwell in the land. Verse 9, he says, uh, wait upon the Lord and you shall inherit the earth. By the way, that inherit the earth sounds familiar, doesn't it? Do you remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? I think it's Matthew 5, verse 5, where Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what does it mean when, when the Bible says you shall dwell in the land or you shall inherit the earth? Well, understand that under the old covenant, so much of the blessing under the old covenant was tied to dwelling safely in the land. For the Israelite, the Jewish people, they would dwell in the land, the land of Canaan, as they were experiencing the blessing of God. And when they would disobey and and be judged, they would be driven out of the land. So the promise was, let's trust in the Lord and walk with him and we will dwell in the land. Well, the same promise applies to us, not dwelling in the land of Israel, but dwelling in the land of God's blessing, that when we trust in the Lord, he will care for us, we will walk in his victory. And ultimately, this promise extends beyond this life into eternal life, that, that it looks forward to the day that we will be with him in heaven. This promise that God gives us of his constant care, walk with me, I'm going to let you experience my blessing. Now the second thing that he says in terms of his, of his promises in verse number 25, that his continuous care will be this, this provision that he will always give to us. Verse 25, I have been young and now I'm old, And yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor God's seed begging bread. He promises us this, that he will take care of us. I want you to hear the promise of Psalm 37, 25. God has never failed to take care of you, has he? Think about it, has he? Those of you who have some life experience, you've walked through some deep valleys before, you've seen some dark days. Was God faithful then? He was. And as David says, we can say with him, I have been young. And now I'm older and I can say from my own experience with him that he has never forsaken me. And I want you to hear this promise. God says, I promise you my constant care that you will always be cared for. You will never be begging bread. What a a terrible commentary it would be on me as a father. If my children were having to scavenge through a dumpster to find food, if I was not willing to do whatever it would take, to make sure that they had food. And yet, God, his testimony, so much grander than any of ours, he has promised that his children will always be cared for. Doesn't mean that times won't be lean, but in those lean times, God will always provide. This is his promise. Constant care, 
I will never forsake you. You will always be fed, he says. Look at verse 28. He says that you will always be preserved. For the Lord loves judgment, forsakes not his saints. He, or they, his saints, will be preserved forever. He promises us during this life that he will guard us and he will watch over us. Imagine the blessing of those receiving and singing through this psalm written by David to know that even when they were suffering, God was guarding their way. God was providing for them and God was caring for them. And we have that same promise even today. And so he promises his constant care and then his constant companionship. He, he guarantees us that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. I love verse number 24. Notice the promise of companionship. Though he fall, following verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And the, and the good man rejoices in the way that the Lord has for him to walk. And even though along the way, along the way ordered by the Lord, he, the righteous man, the good man, might fall. Though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down. You see, what the Bible says is that what Psalm 37 promises is that when we walk in this way with the Lord, trusting in him, there are difficult days. There will be hardships. We're experiencing them now. But he says, along that journey, here's my promise. I will be with you. And though you stumble and fall, you will not be cast down. You will not fall for good. Why not? Verse 24, because the Lord upholds him with his right hand. I love that. It's the idea of a companion, that, that uh, God is holding to our hand. You think of this with your own children that you prayed over earlier. I think of this with my grandchildren as they, as they walk and we hold their hand and they stumble and they toddle and they trip and they fall, but we don't let them fall down. We keep holding them. We keep picking them up. We keep staying with them. And as long as they, their hand is in ours, then they know that they will not fall completely. And God says, I'm promising you this. I know these days are tough. You trust in me. You delight yourself in me. You rest in me. You do good. You find your comfort in me. And I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to provide everything that you need. And I'm never going to let you go. So that the world may fall around you, you will not fall, utterly being cast down. I will uphold you. That unseen companion. It reminds me of that old uh, hymn. I don't know if it's a hymn, but in any way, an old song uh, that speaks of the unseen hand. Some of you remember that. There is an unseen hand to me that guides through ways I cannot see. God's unseen hand constantly with us. Here's what the Bible says. Psalm 37, life is difficult. Hard times come. What do we do when we suffer? And he says, we should trust in the Lord, rest in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, find our comfort in the Lord, do good for the Lord and know that he will provide for us and care for us and walk with us all along the way. But then finally, what about the unrighteous? Because everything that I've just described from Psalm 37 is spoken to the righteous. And you remember there are two groups of people in this passage the righteous and the unrighteous, the saint and the evildoer, the wicked and, the, and the, the, the child of God. What of the unsaved person? Well, Psalm 37, as surely as it speaks of God's care and companionship and provision for his people, it goes on to speak about God's certain justice for the unsaved. 
And I want to close our time together today by, by speaking very directly to those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I want you to listen to this pastor. If you've never come to the place of trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I want you to know that from God's unambiguous, very clearly defined perspective, you would fall in that category of the wicked. Now you may say, Pastor, I'm not a wicked person. I don't do wicked things. I try to be a good person. I understand. But from the perfection of God's perspective, our smallest singular sin disqualifies us as a sinner. And so for those of you who have never trusted in Christ, what can you expect as we go through these days? Well, very plainly and very honestly, here's what God would say to you from Psalm 37. It would say that your good days in this life, your good days here are the only heaven that you will ever know. That your very best day here is as good as it's ever going to get for you. And that your worst day here, listen to me carefully, your worst day in this life will be 10,000 times better than your best day cut off from the life of God in eternity. The Bible is so clear. This gracious, merciful, all-caring, constant companion God who walks with his people promising to provide all that we need to the righteous, looks to the unrighteous, and listen to what he says, verse number one. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Why? For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and they shall wither as the green herb. Verse number nine. For the evildoers shall be cut off, the Bible says. Verse 28. For the Lord loves judgment. He forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever. The saints are, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The Bible says that for those who do not know Christ as their Savior, those who would fall in that category of the wicked or the evildoer, that person will one day, out of the brokenness of this life, be utterly broken forever. And this is the truth of Scripture. And while these two truths, God's grace and goodness to his saints and God's severe judgment on those that reject Christ, while these two truths are so opposite, they are not contradictory at all. Because God loves justice. He loves righteousness and he commands holiness. And the truth is none of us can be perfectly holy as we're commanded to be. And this is why the gospel is such good news, and it's good news for you today. It's because God loved all of us, because all of us have been wicked, unrighteous, and evil people. And the righteous understand we have only been made righteous because of the goodness of God in Christ. And so God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus And that Jesus was willing, he loved you so much that he was willing to go to the cross and die your death. And he was willing to take your sin upon him. The Bible says that God has laid the iniquity of all of us on Christ. And that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins upon the cross. And that Jesus loving us 
unrighteous sinners so much that he died and rose from the dead. And that as the living, resurrected Savior, he lives today to be your Savior. So no matter who you are or what you've done or what your history is or where you are, Christ loves you and he died to make you righteous. And in this moment, he wants to move you from the, from the line or the category or the column of the unrighteous through faith in Christ into the category of the righteous where he will say, I will be your companion. I will guard you. I will preserve you. I will provide for you. I will bless you. And ultimately, I will bring you home to heaven to live with me forever. And the only thing that makes the difference for moving from this column to this one is to come through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter number two, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 